Today's passage comes from Psalm 33. We are in the middle of a sermon series going through the Psalms. Uh, you can find it in your bulletin. Uh, feel free to follow along as I read it aloud. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves, a right, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm kind of excited to preach today uh, for the simple fact that for like the last five or six weeks, I had this persistent cough, and it was a little bit hard physically to preach, but it's uh, finally, finally like 95% gone, so I feel pretty good uh, as I preach today, and uh, I, I hope the, the word is something that will bless us today. You know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking through the book of Psalms, and uh, we titled the series Songs for Life, and the idea was we want to kind of compile this album to correspond with some of the human experiences that we feel. And the last uh, couple of psalms, uh, we, we looked at some of the more negative or the harder human experiences. We looked at things like sorrow, uh, anger, fear, and doubt. And starting today, uh, we're going to start to look at some of the more positive psalms, and uh, we're going to look at things like praise and gratitude and hope. But before we get to uh, those topics, I thought we would look at a more general topic, the topic of awe, which in a, in a sense, encapsulates the other topics. And it's a good place to start because one of the most important things for any human being is to be captured by the wonder and the majesty of God. Uh, one of the most important things for any human being is to actually be in awe of God. And let me explain a little bit about why that is and what I mean by that. <clears throat> uh, there's this Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor and uh, he he wrote this like really big book, which uh, a lot of a lot of people have gotten a lot out of because I think he's connected with this feeling of of the secular age, and it's, it seems to strike a chord with people. Uh, I couldn't read that book because it's, it's too hard to read and it's too big, so I read this like smaller book that explains what he says. And uh, one of my takeaways from basically what this philosopher Charles Taylor says is that one of the problems of our secular age, which that's what he calls this age, our secular age, 
is that there is a lack of awe and wonder, which has resulted in this feeling of malaise and this feeling of being disenchanted with the world. And, you know, 500 years ago, um, <clears throat> what he says is a world without transcendence, a world without things like spirits, a world without demons, those kind of things, that world would have been unimaginable. But now in our secular age, the opposite is true, and it's hard for people to imagine uh, a world uh, beyond this world. It's hard for people to imagine uh, things like spirits and things like demons. And therefore, the result of that is we're left to try to discover or find some kind of meaningful experience or some kind of significance within this material world, which he calls the, the imminent frame. It's a frame of imminence. And the world as we know it, uh, is simply not majestic enough to enchant us, and that has left us feeling this kind of malaise. Now, I like comedians because I think comedians are probably some of the most intelligent people out there, and comedians can actually get away with uh, telling the truth, even, though, even if it's like a dark truth or the dark realities of truth, because they can package it in a way that is somewhat humorous and therefore easily digestible. Louis C.K. is, uh, I think, one of the smartest comedians out there. And he was on Conan O'Brien, and he was giving this interview. And <clears throat> one of the things he was talking about is uh, kids shouldn't have cell phones. And this is why kids shouldn't have cell phones. And I'm going to read what he says. And uh, when, he, when he says it, uh, being interviewed by Conan O'Brien, people find it humorous, and people are actually laughing. But I, I imagine when I read it, it's not going to be that funny, and it's going to be a little bit dark. But this is what he says. This is why kids shouldn't have cell phones. What the phones are taking away is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person because underneath everything in your life is that thing, that empty, forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything. You're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes, that I'm alone. It starts to visit on you, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people are driving and texting. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's just so hard. And his punchline is, that's why we shouldn't give kids cell phones because kids need to experience that harsh reality. Cue the laughter, ha, ha, ha. When he says that people, are, people find it humorous, when you just read it on paper, it's pretty dark, right? And I think that's part of... Uh, Part of the great things about comedians is they can say, uh, I guess, really honest things, and we can digest it easily because we find it humorous. But then you get to the kernel of truth of what they're actually saying and explaining. It's pretty dark. It's pretty sad. Uh, Walter Isaacson's biography on Steve Jobs uh, quotes Steve Jobs as saying this. He says, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom, and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. I think both of these quotes, both of these examples are examples of what Charles Taylor is trying to describe when he's trying to describe our secular age. Without a sense of transcendence, without a sense of a world beyond our world, without a sense of uh, a being beyond ourselves, it leaves us with this feeling of disenchantment, this feeling of malaise. And I think that's part of the reason why you hear a lot of people say things like this, I'm spiritual but not religious. They want to be spiritual because they know it's important to connect with something that's transcendent, but they don't want to be religious because they want to be spiritual on their own terms, which reinforces our individualistic values. 
there's a conflict between this desire for individualism and autonomy with this desire for transcendence and something beyond ourselves. And you find where a lot of people land are is a place that's where they say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Now, you think about it, it's actually really dangerous to rid ourselves and our world of transcendence because without transcendence, as I said before, we are forced to look for something to enchant us and to enchant our hearts. We are forced to look for something to fill us with wonder and awe within the confines of this world. And that's like saying uh, you have to go find this delicious, nourishing meal that will nourish you forever in the candy store. You might find something good in the candy store, and it might taste good for a period of time. But at the end of the day, there are not enough nutrients in there to really sustain you. <coughs> if you're a believer, then you have this framework and you have the resources to be in awe and to be enchanted. But since we live in a secular age, I do think there are pressures that are applied to even believers to suppress that which is transcendent and that which is spiritual. And there's greater pressure to resolve all of these kind of mysteries that uh, the mysteries of God that perhaps uh, are part of the reason why we are enchanted by God and to kind of pursue this uh, intellectual knowledge that simply resides in our minds and not in our hearts. And therefore, the danger for the believer is to also lose a sense of awe and wonder for who God is. Now, Psalm 33, and among many other psalms, it is a perfect solution to a world that is deprived of awe and wonder because it is a call to come to God and to be in awe and wonder of who God is and what he has done. Verse 8 in particular is where we're, uh, we're getting this from. Verse 8 says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And one of the commentaries that I read said this, is, this verse is like the hinge in which the entire psalm pivots. It, it turns this doctrinal understanding of God, which is, of course, good and ne- necessary, into this doxological uh, understanding of God where uh, it's just kind of this confession and this praise of who God is and what he has done. And that part, that doxological part, that part of being in awe of God, of who he is and what he has done, that part is also essential if we want to have a right relationship with God and relate to God in the proper way. You see, the first part of the psalm, it it kind of functions like a call to worship. And there's five verbs that are used here that call people to a particular action. Shout, shout for joy, give thanks, make melody, sing to him, play skillfully. And all of these verbs reflect this call to come and to worship God. And, you know, one of the things we do in our service when we begin our service is we also do a call to worship And the reason we do that is because we're trying to communicate through our liturgy that worship is not something that we kind of casually walk into on our own terms. Worship is not something that we passively participate. It's not like watching a concert. It's not like watching a movie. Worship is a call to take this active role in the singing, in the praise, in the giving thanks, in the making melody to God. Now, we don't often recognize the importance of that part in worship. We don't often recognize the importance of music and singing when it comes to our Christian faith. But did you know this? You know, one of the most frequent commands in the Bible, I think it's actually the second most frequent command in the Bible, is actually to sing. Can you believe that? It's actually to sing. Why? Why is singing so important? You know, if you think about it, music and song is one of the most powerful mediums in which we experience and express a variety of things. For example, you know, it's Halloween, right? Halloween is on Tuesday, and uh, because it's Halloween, there's all these uh, scary movies coming out. Uh, Try watching uh, a scary movie without 
sound, without the, the spooky, scary music. It completely transforms the way you, you watch the movie. Movies, uh, f- music is very important in film because music plays in a very important role in terms of drawing us into the story and, and helping us live in that story. And without music, uh, you, we watch movies in a very different way. Music is also powerful enough to stick in our heads in a very unique way. And that's why jingles are so important uh, from a marketing standpoint. Nationwide is on your side. Like like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Give me a break, give me a break. We have all these jingles, and it could be a jingle that we heard like 20 years ago. We still remember it, right? And that also, I think, shows some of the power of music in that uh, it sticks to us. Uh, in a sense, it kind of becomes a part of us. And that's why in the ancient world, it was this very common pedagogical tool to help uh, the ancient people remember scripture. That's why they would sing the Hebrew scriptures, because it was something that made it easier to commit to their memory. But music also has an important function in our secular age. Uh, there is an author and a music critic, critic and this person doesn't... Uh, believe in God or have a a Christian worldview by any means, but uh, she's describing this experience of listening to Johnny Coltrane, who is this uh, uh, musician, and even though she uh, is self-admittedly agnostic about God, and even though she's a committed rationalist, uh, she's very ready to admit that there is something deeply spiritual and possibly divine reflected in the beauty of his music. And as uh, she's just listening to uh, this music. There's a sense where it, it gives her this experience of transcendence. Uh, there's an experience, there's a, a sense in which she's not haunted by unbelief, but she's actually haunted by belief and faith. <laughs> Charles Taylor says poetry is important because poetry is potentially world-making, and what he's trying to get at is poetry and art. Uh, it, it has this ability to create new symbols, which provides new meaning, it has a power to invade a world of imminence and introduce into our imagination something that is transcendent. And uh, another philosopher who writes a lot about Charles Taylor actually says it like this. Whereas Christians, uh, you talk to Christians, Christians are haunted by doubt. These tiny tastes and experiences of transcendence actually haunts non-believers with faith. And there is a struggle. And you see that in many of the artists of the culture. Uh, you see it in novelists like David Foster Wallace. You see it in novelists like Julian Barnes. Uh, you see it in the music of, I don't know if you know any of these people, right? You see in the music of Arcade Fire. Anybody listen to Arcade Fire? There's this band called Death Cab for Cutie. Maybe you don't know their music, but if you go to a mall, you'll hear their song, right? Uh, it's, it's a common theme in, in a lot of their music, too. And I think their art is an example of just this feeling of being haunted uh, by faith in a secular age. You, you live in this imminent frame and you look at this material world, but there is something in their hearts that is kind of saying there has to be more than this and what is this more than this. And that's why I think it's very fitting that the Bible continually calls the people of God to sing. To sing. One of the ways we shape our hearts is we come to be in awe of a holy and transcendent God. One of the ways that happens is actually through song, through singing to him. You know, it says in, uh, you know, verses 1 to 3 are kind of like the call to worship. Verses 4 to 6, it actually gives us the reason to sing. And it says, for the word of the Lord is upright. He loves righteousness and justice. By the word, the heavens were made. 
And uh, this part of the psalm, I actually kind of consider like the, the Bible study class. This is kind of like the lecture. This is uh, the part where it kind of just tells you about who God is and what he has done. Uh, and that's, of course, the important part. But you see in verse 8 is where the hinge turns, where uh, all of these things kind of turn into some kind of expression or some kind of doxology of praise to God and uh, this realization or this extraction of these doctrinal truths and how it actually works itself out in day-to-day life. Verses 4 to 7 is kind of like reading the table of contents of a book. And then actually reading the book and being drawn into the story, I think, comes after verse 8. So by the time we get to verse 8, we can see how things get take, take this turn. There is a call for everybody, for all who inhabit the world, to come and to stand in awe of him. And if our na- knowledge of God is simply based on uh, the table of contents, uh, we're missing something. Uh, if we simply know about God, but we're not really in awe of him, we're not in praise of him, then there's something deeply, deeply wrong with how we understand and relate to God. I used to think uh, for a believer, a believer should be most worried when uh, they got doctrine wrong, when they departed from good doctrine. I used to think people essentially fall away because they reject uh, good doctrine of Scripture and they reject the authority of Scripture or because they have refused to accept uh, who God is as he's revealed in the Bible. So they refuse to accept that God is maybe one day going to judge the world and these kind of hard truths. I still believe that to a certain extent, but as I get older, I actually think that uh, a believer should be worried before that. A believer should be worried when there is a loss of sense, loss of um, awe for God, when we lose a sense of wonder for God. And in some ways, I wonder if people have wrong doctrine because they first have lost the sense of awe and wonder for God. I wonder if people begin to find things acceptable that Scripture says uh, condemns, because they have lost a sense of awe and wonder for God. As I get older, I think that's actually where it starts. You know, there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus, he calls, uh, he calls us to have the f- faith like a child. And I don't think by that he means we, are, we should be childish in our faith. But there is something about the faith of a child that we can learn from, and Jesus calls us to learn from. Uh, one of the frustrating things as a parent is when your child has this toy that they begged for, and then uh, they, they just leave it behind, and they go chase after something else. And you're like, I bought this for you. Why are you just kind of leaving this behind so easily and chasing something else? And it's because something else has caught their interest. Something else has caught their wonder. And, uh, you know, as a parent, that's frustrating. But I wonder if even that there is something that we can learn from. Because the ability to leave something behind because you are so enamored with something else is not necessarily a bad thing, spiritually speaking. Uh, I think in that passage, it's, it's actually a child is contrasted with the rich young man. And if you remember, Jesus calls this rich young man to leave his wealth and to leave his riches and to follow him. And he's not unable to do it. He goes away sad. And I wonder if he goes away sad because he is not enamored enough by Jesus to leave behind his wealth in order to follow him. G.K. Chesterton wrote uh, about this in an essay called The Ethics of Elfland. And he says, you know, if you tell an older child that a knight opened the door and out popped the dragon, that's something that they're enamored by. But then if you take a young child, maybe two or three years old, all you have to simply tell them is this, a knight opened the door. 
And he's trying to explain that phenomenon, and he says this, you know, as uh, people get older and for older children, you have to make the story fantastic in order to bring them to a point of wonder, in order to enamor them. But for young children, they are already enamored with just reality and with just the way things work every day, something as simple as opening a door. And he says we should really look at that young child who is enamored with the world as it is because if you think about it, it really is a reflection that they are enamored with the creation of God, with the majesty of God, with what God has created and what God has made. And that is something that all people, all believers, we should actually be enamored by as well. But for some reason, as we get older, maybe we acquire more informational knowledge, there is a sense in which we lose awe in just the world and how the world works. And G.K. Chesterton says that is one of the reasons why we should learn from the faith of a child. In this psalm, uh, the psalmist here is also enamored with the creator God. You know, isn't that what it says in verse 9? For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God created the world by his very word out of nothingness, and it came to be. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that? That in itself should be awe-inspiring and should convince us of the wonder and the majesty of God. And uh, as an aside, I know a lot of people think about like evolution and stuff like that. I don't think it's a commentary on the way the world came to be, but it's a commentary on the fact that God as creator created something out of nothing, and he created this wonderful, beautiful world. And something to be in awe of, that he is our creator. But this psalm also stands in wonder of God's power. And we have to summarize this a little bit quickly because there's not enough time to go through every verse. But verses 10 to 17, it is basically noting that God is powerful, that he not only rules over creation, but he also rules over the nations, and he also rules over all of humanity. By his counsel, he has a power. He can bring nations to nothing. He can frustrate the plans of the people. And at the same time, God, even though he is so powerful, he's also deeply involved in humanity and human affairs that he sees all the children of man, all the inhabitants of the earth, and he fashions all of their hearts. And no power can compare at all to God's power. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. And by its great might, the war horse cannot rescue. Power. God is a God of power. And that his power should also be something that brings us to a place of awe and wonder. We, I think, are a little bit cynical as a people, and therefore we're skeptical of power, especially because we have seen so many examples of abuse of power. But, you know, in the history of the world, people have actually often been mesmerized by powerful people. Uh, I think Forbes, you know, uh, somebody here is here who works at Forbes, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. I think Forbes comes out with not just the, uh, a wealthy list, but they come out with the most powerful people list, right? <laughs> I think so. And I, I think uh, part of the reason why that list has to be compiled or that list is compiled is there is this fascination with power and who the influencers are in the world, who the powerful people are in the world, who has the power to make a decision or uh, have, have an action that's actually going to trickle down and impact the entire world. And the psalm is actually saying that all those people on that Forbes list, all those most powerful people are nothing compared to the power of God. God is more powerful than they are, and he can enact his will by simply his very word, by the counsel of his word. 
And again, when we realize that, right, maybe if we stood in the presence of the top 10 of these most powerful people, there would be a sense of awe, depending on whether we like the person or not, right? Maybe we'd be like, wow, you make this decision and all this stuff happens, and it's like, whoa, that's so cool. But even that compares nothing to what God is able to do in his power. And the reason why we're not captured by that Uh, as Charles Taylor explains it, is again, because in our secular age, we kind of live in this imminent frame and we push out things that are transcendent, things that are spiritual, things that are unseen. But we need to remember these things and we need to remember that God is one who is powerful. And we we get small tastes of that, don't we? Uh, We get a taste of that when somebody's heart receives Christ, and uh, when a person is healed. We see that when a nation is spiritually revived. We, we see that when we hear stories of miraculous conversions of like p- imams in Iran because they had a dream and then they become a Christian and all of these things. And then in those moments, we are left standing in awe of the power of God. But perhaps our problem is not so much that God is not at work here, but perhaps because of the pressures of our secular age and because they hinder us from recognizing uh, what God is actually doing, we, we don't actually see it, and therefore we don't, uh, because we don't see it, uh, we don't stand in awe of the power that he has and the things that are, he is doing every single day. But at least for us, uh, there is a work that God has already done that we know uh, that should lead us into this place of standing in awe of him. What was that work? He gave us a son, He gave us a son to die on a cross, to take our sin, our iniquities upon himself so that we might be clean, so that we might be made righteous. The gospel is a message in itself that should bring us to a place of awe because it is truly amazing what God has done. You know, this psalm is actually intensified with the gospel. The psalm, everything in the psalm is intensified with the coming of Christ. Calls us to sing a new song. The gospel gives us another new song to sing. In the book of Revelation, you have these 24 elders, and they're sitting, they're around the heavenly throne, and it says they are singing a new song. A new song in the Old Testament is a song of victory, uh, perhaps after you win a battle or perhaps after a victory over an enemy. In the book of Revelation, the people are singing a new song because Jesus is ultimately victorious over Satan, over sin, over death. And that is this new song that now we are called to participate in along with these 24 elders in this psalm god looks down from heaven and he orchestrates things according to his word but do you realize in the gospel in christ the word of god came down incarnate came down from heaven to execute this plan of redemption for the entire world verse 19 it speaks of deliverance from death but you know in christ there is a resurrection in which death is permanently vanquished and life eternal is offered. The psalm, it speaks of God's steadfast love, but love is demonstrated in the most powerful way when Jesus gives himself up that we might be brought in to receive rest, security, peace, and salvation through the blood of the Lamb. You know, because of the gospel, the things in Psalm 33 aren't irrelevant or aren't less true. But because of the gospel, because of Christ, everything in Psalm 33 is actually intensified 
The call is intensified. The promises are intensified. Everything that it speaks of is intensified. And the question for us then is this. How much more then should we be in awe of him? How much more intense is the call to come and to stand in awe of him? He is the one who created this world. He is the one who sustains this world. He is the one who redeemed this world. God is so great and his ways are higher than our ways. His wisdom is infinite. His love knows no end. His grace overflows. His mercies are new every day. His power is mighty. His beauty is something that is beyond description. And the more that is something that captures our hearts, captures our imagination, invites us to simply be in awe of him and be in wonder of him, the better off we are. Spiritually speaking, I would say emotionally speaking, maybe even physically speaking, the more we can be drawn there and put there, the more this knowledge of the Bible and of doctrine and theology turns into doxology and turns into worship, then the more complete our understanding of God will be. The psalm calls us to that, and we need it not simply as people who attend church on Sundays. Uh, We need it in the core of our souls. And if you're not a believer, I can tell you, you need that. You need that sense of transcendence and awe. And the rest of New York and the rest of the world needs that sense of transcendence and awe. Because when they realize this God that created the world and saved us by the blood of Christ, there is no other response that is appropriate than to be in awe of him. Let's pray together.